0: book of Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. The apostle Paul writes, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith." Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our, our Lord and God. We thank you for the opportunity to worship your name. And we ask for a blessing to be upon Pastor Jeff as he divides the word rightly for us this morning. Will you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us to place in our heart that it may grow and we may meditate on it and we may trust what you're doing in this world. For may we recognize how you are working and active, even using your wrath to bring about your goodwill. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Welcome back. Good to be back. Good to see all of you. It really is. Got to spend a week in the place of my birth and <clears throat> got to take my older two boys back to Virginia. And uh, they got to see my old stomping grounds. They got to see the tragedy that was <laughs> uh, my background. And, and they also got to meet some of my friends and my family members. And now <clears throat> they understand. <laughs> like they, they get it. They're like, we get it, (laughs) Dad. That passage we just read is pretty shocking. It's not shocking to you. You're a Christian. You live in the Western world. But if you were a Greco-Roman and you were not a Christian, you would be ashamed. Your initial reaction to the message that God's true king has died on a Roman cross would be the most shameful thing you could utter socially, politically, in the world. And so we're going to look today at Paul kind of telling us why it is that the gospel reveals a righteousness against the shameful, disgraceful, unrighteousness that has just become the norm. And for these Greeks and Romans who are, who are reading this or hearing this being read to them in church, uh, Paul is going to unpack it for them. He is going to make his case. And before he explains how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and God's power for righteous living, he must help two groups of people in this letter to begin with to understand what their dilemma is. So in chapter one, he's essentially going to describe for the Gentile uh, what a life of idolatry and atheism looks like. So when you believe in false gods, you believe in no God. And so here's what, idolatry, here's what happens when you believe in false gods, right? And so he's going to unpack that, and it's going to be this sort of spiraling uh, condemnation, really, of uh, the Gentile way of life apart from Christ. And so what the Gentiles need to understand is that God in the gospel has revealed his righteousness. Now, just in case his fellow Jews in that same church cross their arms and sit there and look down at their snarky noses at their Gentile neighbors, he turns in chapter 2 to say, and you are equally guilty. You who were born into Abraham, you who have Torah law, the fact of the matter is, is that you still stand before a holy, perfectly righteous God, and your righteousness according to the law is not enough. It's not enough. All it can do is point you and drive you into the arms of grace. So his conclusion is now, chapter 3, verse 21, God has revealed a righteousness that is wholly apart from the law. That is, from trying to live up to the law, from trying to obey every command you can get your hands on to be good enough for God. He says, now a righteousness has been revealed by faith. So the Gentile needs to know the righteousness of God that is from faith first to last, and the Jew also needs to know the righteousness of God that is from faith, from Abraham to Christ. It is by faith in Jesus. But he has to, before he explains the righteousness of God, he has to explain unrighteousness. And he says in verse 18, this shocking passage, he says, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, the reason why the gospel is the power of God into salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, is because it proposes to solve a dilemma that we have all gotten ourselves into, but out of which we cannot get ourselves, and it is the dilemma of sin and unrighteousness and godlessness. So, what is wrath? What does he mean by this? What is the wrath of God? Well, the word wrath is the term orge, it's where we get the word orgy. And it designates a strong indignation towards uh, wrongdoing with a focus on retribution or what we call retributive justice. So it's a strong emotional uh, expression of indignation toward the crime that was committed with a view to passing a sentence of retributive justice to say that your sin requires punishment and this is the sentence this is the verdict now you see this in courtrooms in uh, on tv sometimes what you'll see is you'll see uh, a heinous crime that has been committed they go through the whole trial everybody presents their evidence the defense presents their case they get to the end of it it turns out this person is guilty of abuse or rape or murder or whatever it is this heinous crime and then the judge will stand sit there at the bar and she will read he will read the verdict and a summary of the evidence. And after that forensic declaration of that person's guilt and the sentence that accompanies it, they will put the paper down and take off their glasses and say, now let me make a final word here. I have one final thing to say to you. And you will see the judge say, what you have done is beyond the pale. It's immoral, it's heinous. And so the judge expresses his or her personal Uh, just sort of revulsion for the heinousness of the crime that is committed. That's the word wrath. The word wrath is a judicial term. It is a sentence. It is a forensic declaration that you do not stand in the right, but it also has something of the judge's emotional anger or his revulsion toward the sin that has been committed. So essentially in the Bible there are three kinds of, of wrath. The first kind is eschatological wrath. Eschatological wrath is just final wrath, that's eschatology is just meaning the study of the last things. That's just a wrath that God uh, pours out on the last day. It's called the day of the Lord in the Bible, in the Old Testament New Testament. It's called the day of the Lord's vengeance or the day of the Lord's wrath. And that's judgment day. That's the day uh, that we all will be called before the bar of God's justice, and we will give an account for the life lived in the body, and we will be declared justified or not justified. But that is a final irreversible verdict. The Bible seems to make it clear that that verdict on Judgment Day is irreversible. And so if you stand justified and in the right, you will go to, with God to eternal life. If you stand unjustified and in the wrong, you will be thrown into the lake of fire, into hell. The Bible seems pretty clear about that. But there's a different kind of wrath in the Bible. That's natural wrath. So the Bible recognizes a kind of natural wrath. This is Romans chapter 8 wrath. This is the world, the cosmos, God's world that He created good, but it now has a standing judgment of decay, and it's been subject, according to verse 20, it's been subject to futility by the one who subjected it, which is God. God has subjected the world to futility in anticipation of its deliverance from its decay to the glorious freedom of what? New creation, So there's a sense in which the natural world has been cursed. It's it's under a standing judgment, and that's natural wrath. But then there's another kind of wrath that Paul is talking to us about today, and that's what we call punitive or corrective wrath. This is the wrath that is being revealed. Not the wrath that is going to someday be revealed, but the wrath that is unfolding now. It's being revealed upon us to correct our course Not only to punish us, but to correct us in hopes of bringing us back into alignment with God. How do we know it's the third type of wrath? Because three times in this passage, Paul uses the Greek word paradidomi. The word paradidomi means to give up or give over. That's a judicial term. It means to give over to the bailiff, and then the bailiff delivers you to jail. So it means to be delivered over to your jailer. And three times, Paul says, God gave them up. God gave them over. God handed down the sentence to say, okay, you want that? You can have it. You're being delivered to your jailer. And what is the purpose of this kind of wrath? It's it's to send you to the correction facility to correct you. It's hopefully so that you do your time and realize that the path that you have chosen was the wrong path to right you and to bring you back to the right path. Example of this is Paul referring to a situation to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 through through 5. And what he says there is, he says, I've heard the report that there is a young man among you who is doing something terrible. He is committing adultery with his stepmom. And then he's living openly as a believer in your midst. Paul says, I have already passed sentence. There's the judicial part. He says, on this young man, and here's what he says, I have given him up, it's the word paradidomi, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in order. Why? Why? In order that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. That is the day of the Lord's wrath. In other words, why was he given up? Why was the wrath of God revealed against this young man now? It's in the hopes that he would self-correct and he would realize the futility and the utter senselessness of his path and come back into the fold. And then we learn in 2 Corinthians, in fact, he does just that. The young man repents. And Paul says, way to go. Way to go. And so this is the kind of wrath we're talking about in this passage it is God's wrath to deliver us over to the sinful devices that we demand from him, the things that we must have. God says, okay, I've tried to plead with you. I sent you a church. I sent you the gospel. I sent you a Christian. You can have it. You can have it. And consequence shall be thy teacher. So, so long as God's wrath is being revealed against all godlessness and unrighteousness, there is a chance for a culture or a people to turn and repent. Now, if you don't believe that, just look who he's writing to. And just a couple hundred short years or so, the Roman Empire will declare the Christian faith to be uh, be legal. And then after that, a few years after that, they will declare it to be the state religion. Don't tell me that a person is beyond repentance or beyond God's reach. So long as they live in the body, god will still the invitation is still open but wrath must take its place why is god's wrath necessary well he tells us right here god has revealed his nature to us and we have rejected that revelation god has revealed his nature to us sufficiently abundantly and then we as human beings have rejected that revelation verse 19 says for god's wrath is revealed from heaven Against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, Uh, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them for His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine natures. Now, those are two meta-categories. Those are two large categories. There are lots of things that fit under there. There are lots of things that can be known about God from nature. This is called natural revelation, and it reveals generally what is true about God. His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. Notice what he says here. Now, God has revealed Himself in the created order that that His invisible, immaterial, and eternal divine attributes can be clearly seen, Paul says, in the visible, material, temporal universe. And the revelation supplied is sufficient and obvious, such that to deny it constitutes active suppression of it. I will say that again. The revelation that is revealed in creation is so obvious, Paul says, that to deny it constitutes an active suppression of it. You would have to actively suppress this revelation to deny it. That's what he says. And here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying when a normally functioning mind looks at the world in all of its clockwork perfection and mind-boggling wonder, as many of you do, the properly functioning mind, a person with properly functioning cognitive faculties, they will look at the world and they will not just ask process questions. How does that work? They will ask philosophical questions. Where did that come from? Moreover, who made it? Who designed it? You see, the creation cries out for an explanation of its existence, and there are only two possible explanations. It exists necessarily, or it exists contingently, okay? God's existence cries out for an explanation of his existence, and there are only two possibilities. God exists necessarily, or he exists contingency, contingently. There's nothing about God's existence that would tell us that he exists contingently, God doesn't have anything external to him that is generating his existence. God is a necessary, self-existent, eternal being. He is the uncreated cause of everything else. But when we look at the world, we surmise, we deduct from the world that it looks for all the world like a contingent reality, like its existence is dependent on something else, something beyond itself. Now, when you make that deduction, you are making the most natural observation that a human being can make, other than the fact that you exist, other than the fact that you know who you are. You're looking at an effect and you're assuming that that effect, like everything else in your life, has a transcendent cause. And so Paul says it's the most natural thing a person could do. The conclusion that the universe has a planning, designing intellect behind it is a natural observation. It's normal. Paul says God has made it clear. Look at the words in this passage that he uses. Look at the words he says uh, what can be known about God is evident. It should be evident because God has shown it to them. The invisible attributes are visible uh, or are knowable through the visible. They're clearly seen, he says. They're perspicuous. And then this revelation comes with a degree of perspicacity, right? It's understandable, It's fundamentally intelligible. It's not something you have to talk yourself into. It's not an equation you have to sit and figure out. It's just fundamentally intelligible. There must be a God behind this entire universe. So the problem is that the unbelieving mind is in a state of spiritual darkness. That's its problem. The problem is that the unbelieving mind is in a state of spiritual darkness due to sin. Now let's imagine that you were a heavy smoker. I hope that's not true of any of you. But I grew up with lots of heavy smokers. I have breathed in more secondhand smoke than I care to remember. Uh, and so let's just imagine that you're a heavy smoker. Let's say you started smoking when I did, like age nine, right? Like super young. But you didn't quit. I quit at 14 and I stopped smoking. But let's say you're still smoking. In your 40s, all of a sudden you start losing your eyesight. And you start getting tunnel vision. You're like, what is going on with my eyesight? You go to the doctor, and the doctor has to explain to you, this is true, by the way, that in addition to heart failure, in addition to stroke, in addition to the hardening of your arteries or all kinds of other physical problems that smoking, chain smoking, that comes along with chain smoking, he tells you actually smoking is one of the main causes of macular degeneration. You're going to go blind. But here's the good news. If you stop smoking right now at the age of 41, you can reverse this. It can get better. Not perfect, but better. But you don't. Now I pick you up at your house. You're 70. You've been smoking all this time, chain smoking, putting them down, man. I pick you up and I say, hey, let's I found this great spot where you can see the sun come up over the Tetons. I want to take you there. Let's go see it. And you're like, yeah, let's go see it. But you can't see anything. Your your sight has become, you have become so blinded, you can see two little pinholes right in front of you, you can't see 25 feet beyond you, and I take you up into this ridge, and the sun, that glorious, dazzling ball, starts to come up over those mountains, and people start to gather, and they start to go, ooh, ah, beautiful, and you're like, I can't see it, and then we we start to describe it to you, we tell you, well, it's right there, here's what it looks like, And, and you start getting angry, well, I can't see it, so I don't believe it's there what problem do you have? You don't have an evidence problem. You don't have an information problem. You got a sight problem. And whenever you have a sight problem, you have a sin problem because this is what sin does. This is what a life of sin does to us. It darkens the mind of the heart such that we cannot see what Paul says is an evident revelation in nature. Paul says it should be able to be clearly seen. But you don't have an evidence problem. You've got a sight problem because you have a sin problem. This is what sin does to us. And so the conclusion that the universe has a planning, intentional creator behind it is the most natural deduction or observation that a person should ever make. It should be as obvious as the nose on your face. And so the result, Paul says, is that no one could stand before God and say, well, I couldn't see it. Well, you couldn't see it because of your sin. You chose sin instead of sight. And Paul wants to say God's revelation in nature is sufficient for the general observation that God exists, that he is glorious and worthy of our gratitude. Number two, God has revealed his law having written it on our hearts, chapter two. So we gotta fast forward a little bit. So the revelation in nature and creation is not the only kind of revelation God has given us. He's also given us the revelation of his moral law, so in chapter 2, verse 14, he says this. He's talking to the Jews now. He says, So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, that means they're not Jews. They weren't raised in an Abrahamic home. They didn't hear Moses' law. They don't have the covenant. They don't have the prophets. He said, But when they do not have by nature the law, but when they do what the law, the moral law, demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have Moses' law. So he says, he says, "'They show that the work of the law "'is written on their hearts. "'Their consciences confirm this. "'Their competing thoughts either accuse them "'or even excuse them. "'On the day when God judges "'what people have kept secret,' according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now what he goes on to say is the Jew will be condemned by the law, the Gentile will be condemned without the Mosaic law, but with this law that has been written on their hearts because the moral law of God has been etched in the soul of everyone who bears his image. And so there are two things being revealed. The nature of God is eternal, immortal, invisible, divine, and the existence of a moral law which we have broken. And so when you understand God you understand the nature of sin. I want to say that again. When you understand the nature of God and what God is like, you understand the nature of sin. I want to show this to you. If you have your bulletin, you can follow along right here in the middle. We must understand that God is holy and jealously guards the sanctity of his creation. The first thing that nature tells us and the moral law of God tells us is that God, this God who created the world, must be holy. And what do we know about sin? Intuitively, we know that sin defiles. Okay, sin defiles that which is pure. Sin is a defiling element to God's holiness. So God is holy. You can think of God as the high priest of his cosmic temple. And what does he do after he creates the temple? He shabbats, he enters it. He fills it with his presence, and he rests in it. That's what he does, and so he's this high priest of his holy temple, and when a defiling element comes into his sanctuary, he must deal with it. And so sin desecrates the sacred. It vandalizes the hollowed ground of God's garden sanctuary. So what happens to the image bearers? They have to be put outside the sanctuary because they have defiled it. God is holy. God is also the sovereign king over his realm understand that God is the sovereign king over his realm. So the first hat that God wears is this sort of holy high priest of his temple, right, whose, whose job is to safeguard the sacred and to keep sin which defiles it out of it. But God is also a sovereign king over his realm. And sin is living in defiance, defiance of his authority, of his unqualified authority to rule his kingdom. So, God is the benevolent and absolute ruler of His realm, and as the world's sovereign king, God aims to bring a world out of alignment, back into alignment with Him. But in order to do that, He must put away sin. He must deal with the rebellion. Understand that God is also a supreme judge of His people. Once God brings into existence people like Him, Beings who bear His image and His likeness, they are free moral agents. He gives them a moral ought, which implies they can do what He's told them to do. But then they don't do it. Now God wears the hat of judge. And every free moral being stands before the bar of God's justice, and they will be judged by God. God is the judge who pronounces us justified or not. And then God is our gracious and loving heavenly Father, do not leave this one off the list. What we learn is that sin is, defiles his holy realm. Sin is living in defiance of his absolute rule. And sin is delinquency to his moral law. He has to bring it before his bench and judge it. But God is also a loving, gracious, heavenly father. Sin is dishonor to his high honor. Now the word Abba, have you heard this term? In the Bible, you've come across it like in the book of Galatians or whatever. The word Abba does not mean daddy. Please do not use that word that way. The word Abba means honored father. It's a term that a Semite would use of a, of a father who was honored because this is what you do to your parents. You honor thy father and thy mother. And God, as the ultimate infinite, personal creator of the universe who is the heavenly father is worthy of high honor, but sin dishonors him. Sin is an open hand slapped to the face of his high honor, and it must be satisfied. And the thing is, is that our gracious heavenly father, he loves the rebel. He loves the defiler. He loves the person who stands before his bench guilty as sin, and he loves the children who have slapped his high honor. God loves us. And so God has graciously provided a way to pardon our sin. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he is a gracious, providing, loving heavenly father. So understand that the world and our nature reveals some things about God, about his nature. What kind of God we're dealing with here. And how have we rejected this self-revelation and creation and conscience? Number three, how have we rejected God's self-revelation and creation and conscience? How have we done it? Well, we've denied God's existence through idolatry and atheism. We've denied God's existence through idolatry or atheism. Let me say this. He's going to focus on idolatry, right? But idolatry is essentially a form of atheism. What do we mean by that? okay, so idolatry, here's what idolatry is, it's when you transfer the attributes of God which are unique to God, okay, so God has these attributes, and they qualify him to be God, right, I mean, they they are the attributes that are part of his nature, and they are category specific, they're category specific, only God has them, which means he is God, and then he creates this realm, this created realm, this, let's call it the closed circle, let's call it the universe, right, Idolatry is whenever you take the category-specific attributes of God and you transfer them to things within his creation and then call that God. Well, that's no God at all. The gods of Hinduism, the gods of the uh, Greco-Roman pantheon, the gods of the Babylonian pantheon, they're not gods at all. How do we know this? Because we know that they are just the products of the created order. They're just the products of God's created order. In other words, someone has invented them and assigned to them God's characteristics. So people who worship them aren't worshiping gods at all. They're just worshiping things in creation that they've robbed God of his attributes, his defining attributes, and then assigned them to things in the creation. This is what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying they've exchanged the glory of the immortal, eternal God, who alone is God, and then they've assigned those attributes to thing, and they've exchanged it for lesser glories of worshiping created things. That is senseless. That's senseless. So you could practice atheism as idolatry, or you could practice atheism by denying that there is anything supernatural whatsoever. You can say there just is no God. There is nothing to worship at all, which is called naturalism. Look at what he says. He says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. So what are the two things we didn't do? We didn't give God the credit for being God. We didn't gratify ourselves in the glory of God. And then we didn't show gratitude for God for providing air and water and soil to grow our crops and animals to eat. Like we didn't, we didn't show God the gratitude that is due Him. And instead their thinking became what? Senseless, worthless, futile. And their senseless hearts became darkened. You see what sin does? It darkens the mind. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. That's idolatry, but that's also just not worshiping anything. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the God who created it, who is forever praised. Amen because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. So what haven't we done? We have not acknowledged God. We haven't worshiped him. We haven't given him his due. And so Paul says very clearly here, God is knowable. God is discernible from nature, from creation and conscience. God is knowable But instead, we chose sin, our minds became darkened, and then we denied, we refused to acknowledge that God is the creator, God alone has the glory for creation, and God is worthy of our highest praise and thanksgiving because he's provided for us. Now, listen, listen. If a person or a culture's worldview starts with the premise that God does not exist then there is no objective grounding, there is no objective grounds to define a human being. What tells you what you are? What objectively tells you what you are? Is there anything objective to you that tells you this is what you are and this is how you're to function in human relationships? Nothing. So if you deny the truth that God exists, then there is no objective grounds, there is no objective anchor for viewing a human being as anything special, anything other than just matter in motion, just an animal, an evolved animal. And there is also no objective source for moral values and truth. There's nothing out there that defines what morality is, what moral behavior is. And there's no one out there to give you moral obligations to your neighbor. So if a culture denies that God exists, All hell will break loose in that culture. And that is what we're seeing in our culture today. We're seeing a culture that has rejected the knowledge of God, and they have turned to sin, and sin has darkened their minds, and they can't see the sun coming up over the horizon, though the rest of us are trying to explain, no, it's there, trust me, it's there. And what is happening is people, we have an entire generation now today that's becoming completely untethered, unmoored from the reality that God exists and that moral values are objective, and that this same God has issued us moral commands and obligations and duties that we have toward one another. You take God out of the equation, and you can't even define what a human being is. You can't because he is the objective source of our meaning, of our purpose, of our definition, of our moral values and duties. But the second premise is just as dangerous. It's just as terrifying. The second way we rejected God's revelation, number four, is we denied God's authority to determine our purpose and prescribe us moral laws. Denying God's existence leads to the degoding of God. Denying God's existence leads to the de of God, right? And the second denial leads to the dehumanizing of a human being. It leads to denying what, how God has created a human being and what he has said a human being is, what their purpose is, and what their obligations are to others. So to deny that God has, as the sole creator of the universe, the sole right to design you and decree what you are and how you're to live is idolatry. It's a repudiation of his authority. So it's a denial of his authority to determine us. It's a denial of his authority to determine our purpose and our worth and our value and our moral duties. He says in verse 21 and 23, we spurn the glory of God. He says, we refuse to offer thanksgiving and gratitude toward the Lord and then resulting in futile and worthless reasoning. And so you hear these nonsensical arguments by these pop atheists like Bill Maher and Ricky Gervais and Sam Harris. You see these people in interviews on TV and you think, what are these people thinking? This thinking is messed up. It's senseless. It's moronic. It becomes a life that is lived outside of the holiness of God. A life that flouts His just judgments and doesn't care, a life that is not ruled by His sovereign grace and His goodness, and a life that is not walking according to relationship with Him, with our loving and gracious Heavenly Father. And so God's wrath delivers us up. What does it do? It delivers us over to the things that we demand in the hopes that we will be corrected. So what is the result of rejecting God's revelation and denying His authority over creation? Well, God delivers us over to our jailers. God delivers us over to the things that we absolutely demand, our devices, in the hopes that they will be our teacher, our final teacher, to turn us back into the arms of grace. And the most obvious example that he gives here is the emergence and demand of perverse sexual relationships. Number five, God has delivered us over to perverse sexuality and to utterly corrupt minds in this regard. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, most of you know this. God created man and women, right? Male and female, he created them what? In his image. And in his image he created them male and female. And so what we are seeing in our culture today, just like Paul was seeing in Greco-Rome, is people who are untethered, utterly unmoored from God's design and his purpose and his decree, his moral decree for their lives. And now they are just making it up as they go. And so the first thing he mentions here is heterosexual perversion. Verse 24, he says, Therefore, God delivered them over and the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. <clears throat> so this is probably a reference to the variety of adulterous behavior that permeated Greco Roman culture. And no doubt that was their main problem, no question. And so you could get off the ship right there in the harbor. And some of you have been there. You've been to Turkey, or you've been to ancient Greece or ancient Rome, and you can see right there, built into the stones are steps with the name of the brothel that you walk to as soon as you get off the ship. As soon as you get off your cargo ship, you walk straight to the brothel, right? And so this is a world now that is just full, just permeated with sexual perversions. And sexual perversion is very simply this— it is any way that God has not designed you or decreed you to behave toward another person sexually. So if it's not part of God's design and his decree, if God has not put his hand on it to bless it and, and to say this is the relationship that leads to human flourishing, then it's perversion. It's a perversion of his design and his decree and his blessing. And so this is what the Greco-Romans were guilty of. And this is why we encourage you on a Sunday morning like this to not engage in this. Do not sleep with people who are not your uh, spouses (laughs) by marriage, by law, and before God. Uh, Do not commit adultery. Do not give your mind over to the darkness, the, the spiritual heroine of pornography. Whatever you have to do, whatever you have to do, do not live a perverted sexual life. So he mentions, firstly, heterosexual perversion. And then he mentions something called inflamed passions. Now, I want to point out that there's a difference between natural sexual temptation and inflamed passions. Okay, so the next thing he's going to mention here is homosexual perversion. So he mentions that, right? Verses 26 and 27, pretty clear. It says, for this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women who were inflamed in their lust for one another, and men committed shameful acts with men and received in their persons, their own persons, the appropriate penalty of their error. So what God has done is God has built into the human body a sort of check and balance. God has built in parameters. God has said, listen, If you use your body this way, if you change smoke from the age of nine to the age of 70, you're going to die of heart disease, like a stroke's going to take you out, or you're going to lose your eyesight, right? So God has built into the human body certain restraints, certain parameters, and if you go beyond those parameters enough, it will uh, affect your body in a deleterious way. Now, the Greco-Romans, they know exactly what Paul is talking about, because archaeologists have dug up their temples, and you know what you find in their temples? you find temples that are full of phallic symbols that have been offered to the gods, begging the gods to heal them of their sexual diseases, sexually transmitted diseases. STDs are not a new thing. They were dealing with them back then. And so they know exactly what Paul is referring to. Paul is saying, listen, God made the equipment this way, and if you misuse the equipment, it's going to have deleterious effects on your life. This is also true of homosexual perversion. God did not make uh, males to have sex with males. He did not make females to have sex with females. Uh, The male is the natural biological complement to the female. And the female is the natural biological complement to the male. And God made sexual relationships for one man, one woman for life. That's His gold standard. Okay? He didn't make us for serial divorces, He didn't make us for serial adultery. He didn't make our minds for pornography. He didn't do any of that. He made us in that context, and that's how he designed us, and that's what he puts his hand on and says, that is a blessed life. That will lead to human flourishing, to the blessing of life. And the others don't. The others don't. So what is the difference between natural sexual temptation or unnatural sexual temptation and inflamed passions. He uses this phrase here, which means to fire up one's passions. What's the difference? Listen, if you are struggling with a temptation sitting here this morning, and that's 100% of you guys, for sure, <laughs> right? You, you struggle with this, at least in your minds. Whatever temptation you are struggling with sitting here this morning, it is not a sin to struggle with temptation. Like, it's not a sin to have a desire for something that's off limits, it's not a sin to 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 think, yeah, I would really like that, right? It's when you act on it. And so, what is the difference between having a natural temptation and inflamed passions? Just to give you an analogy of this, I had a friend. We were talking uh, at summer camp, and I was a counselor at summer camp, and she was too. And uh, I noticed she was wearing shorts one day, and I noticed that her legs were really scarred up, and they looked like they had mostly gone away, but you could really still see them. And I asked her one day, I said, I hope you're not offended by this, but how did you get those scars on your legs? She said, oh, fire. I said, what? She said, yeah, I was sitting by a campfire, and my boyfriend came up, and he was about to gas up his motorcycle, which is right by the campfire. We were there early in the morning. We thought the fire was out, but we didn't know there were a bunch of coals and embers just sitting kind of under the logs, and he tripped and fell into the fire. Now, he had an open gas can, and when he tripped and fell into the fire, he spilled the fire, he rolled away from it really quickly and spilled the, fi- the gas into the uh, embers and she was sitting right there and it splashed up onto her and burned her and after several surgeries, she was looking better, she could use her legs again, but the scars were still there and that's the difference. If you've got an ember in your flesh, don't pour gasoline on it. Like if you got hot coals sitting there underneath tame it keep control this is what paul commands us to do let me let me show you this he says in first corinthians 10 13 he says no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity so no one could ever use the excuse well my temptation is super super special it's it's really harder than the rest of yours no it's not no temptation has come upon you that isn't common to hu- the human experience But God is faithful. God is faithful. He is or he's not, is he? He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Listen, we don't like this message in America. We don't like this idea of having to bear it. There are things, guys, that you and I are going to have to bear till we die. There are things that we're going to have to suffer under, and there are things that we're going to have to go to God in prayer. You say, well, hold on. Can you pray your your pornography away? Can you pray your gay away? Well, prayer doesn't hurt. (laughs) It's not going to hurt you. It's good for you. So the first thing we do, that scripture we open with, uh, Psalm 51. We go to Psalm 51, and we pray David's words. We make them our words, and we pray them from the heart and we confess all that we are to God. We confess our sinful desires to a holy, righteous king. And We acknowledge that God exists and alone has the right to determine our path, to determine what we are, the purpose we were made for, and the moral obligations that we have to other people, including our spouses. And then we seek the kingdom and his righteousness through prayer, regular engagement in body life, plant your life in the body, And then saturate your mind in God's holy word. And then we refuse to allow our minds to become the playgrounds of the devil, to become corrupted by ignorant and and the ignorant and perverse culture around us. You can't isolate, but you can't insulate. And then, after everything you have done to stand, Ephesians chapter six, stand. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter six. He says, Now, after having done everything to stand, stand. Bear it. Go to God. Stand unswerving, come what may, be a temptation or societal pressure or condemnation. You stand on the rock, the God of your salvation who fills you to all fullness with the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning uh, for this just, just this powerful word. God, we thank you that in your grace you won't let us go till the very last second. We thank you that in you being a gracious, loving, heavenly Father, you have already provided a means of our pardon. As sinners, we can be pardoned before your holy court. And God, we thank you for sending Jesus of Nazareth who took upon himself the sins of humanity, who bore our sins And now in exchange makes us the righteousness of God. We receive by grace the righteousness of God delivered to the open hands of faith. And God, we thank you for it. And Lord, would you help my brethren? Would you help us? Lord, we all struggle in many ways. We all struggle in many ways, but would you help us to stand on your truth? Would you help us to stand on the rock of our salvation? Would you help us to be resolute to say we are going to walk holy before our holy God. We are going to conform our minds to his word, not the pattern of this ignorant, perverse culture. And God, would you save our culture? Would you just join me right now in praying for America? God, we know it's not over yet. Yes, you're pouring your wrath out on the United States of America. The wrath of God is being revealed against all of our ungodliness, against all of our unrighteousness. But, God, we know that it's corrective wrath. We know it's to drive us back into the arms of grace. Would you help this generation to see that the unrighteous path has led them to futility, that it's led them to nothing, to emptiness? And God, by the Holy Spirit, would you bring them, draw them back into the loving arms of your grace and your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.